Now we're going to read from God's Word. Tonight we're in the book of John, chapter 3. We are going to read verses 1 through 21. Last week we looked at uh, mostly verses 1 through 13. Uh, Tonight we'll focus on the rest of that section. So John 3, 1 through 21. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but He who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. This is God's word. Well, tonight we're looking at this text and we're we're resuming a discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus. You'll remember Nicodemus is this this man who, who drenched his life in religion. And he comes to Jesus and essentially what he asks Jesus is, Jesus, who are you and why did you come? Now, Jesus is a public figure, so everyone is, is seeing him and 
having this chance to inspect him and, and make a, some kind of assessment. The city, the entire city of Jerusalem saw him clear the temple. People saw him doing signs and doing miracles. And so G, Nicodemus is trying to take this all in and he's trying to fit Jesus into his own religious grid. And, and he's asking Jesus, how do you fit in? How do you fit into all of this that we've learned and taught and know? And that's not just something for Nicodemus and the Jews in Jerusalem so many years ago. This is also the question that comes to all of us today. It comes to us today even if you've been in church all your life. Because Jesus is just as much a public figure now and just as much then today you need to know how Jesus fits into your grid how you put things together. In 2024, Jesus still is a public figure. Jesus still has a following. Maybe, I mean, I, I, don't, I haven't done a study, but probably for just even a quarter of every film that's produced today, probably a quarter of them have dialogue where somebody invokes his name, even if it's just a curse. And in all kinds of mass gatherings, whether we're talking about demonstrations, political gatherings, rallies, whatever, people hold up signs, homemade signs, and some of them invoke the name of Jesus. So Jesus is just as much in the eyes, in the mind of the public today. How does he fit in? So for today, you, like Nicodemus, face the same two questions. Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come? And so in in our text, part of the answer is here. Here's the answer. Jesus came. Jesus came so that you would believe and live. I I was talking to a friend yesterday And this friend leads a prison ministry. It's based in another state. And he would like to come to us. He would like to come to this congregation and present this prison ministry to our congregation. Try to engage our interest in discipleship correspondence with people who are in prison. And I think we can make that happen. I think we can make that happen this year. But he was wondering if, well, instead of driving into town from three states away, could he visit us and and maybe present the work over Zoom? Well, of course, of course he could do that. But, but we both agreed, it would be much more effective if, if he could come and he could present to us in person, an in-person, in-person, personal visit to connect people, to engage people, to convince people at a deeper level. Well, that's why Jesus came. Jesus made the in-person visit. Verse 13 says, the Son of Man came down from heaven. Jesus came down in person from heaven. Why? He came in person to convince us. He came in person person to make this personal visit. It was in no way virtual. He came to convince us in person. Verse 11, and this is what he said. He said, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. He says, I tell you about earthly things. I have heavenly things to tell you about. And so what he's saying by coming He came. He's saying an email from heaven would not have been sufficient. A virtual visit, maybe maybe the version back then of a virtual visit would have been a dream, perhaps a vision. He says that would not have been enough for this message. And he says that I had to come down in person. I had to come down in person from heaven to make this case. And so here in John 3, Jesus begins to tell us who he is and why He came. Here's why he came. He came that you would believe. He came that you would believe on him. So three things in our text. Believe on him 
who was sacrificed, believe on him or remain condemned, believe on him and live. So let's look at these. First, believe on him who was sacrificed. This is in verses 14 and 15. John 13, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. And so here, what Jesus is doing is he's referencing a very well-known incident in the history of Israel, in the history of the Jews, when Israel was traveling out of Egypt from slavery and heading to their designated territory, the promised land, Canaan. They were traveling to freedom through the wilderness. They faced all kinds of troubles. They faced all kinds of challenges and troubles. And many times on that long, troublesome journey, the people of Israel did what we do when we don't like our circumstances in life. They grumbled. They complained. They distrusted God. We know what that's like. It's very easy for us to do, isn't it? Grumbling against God, it's kind of like the kids at the dinner table, and they're grumbling about the food that mom has carefully cooked up and she's carefully served. And, and then what they say when she serves it up is, why? Why do we have to eat tomatoes? Why do we have to have onions? Why, why can't we have burgers? Now, in this incident that is being referenced here, Numbers 21, the people's grumbled. They grumbled under, against the leadership of Moses. They grumbled against God for keeping them for so long in the wilderness, and they, they hated what he served them to eat. They, they hated the bread that God was serving them every day, and they said, these were their words, we loathe this miserable food. So there was that grumbling. And in response, in this incident, the Lord sent snakes. He sent fiery serpents to bite the people who were complaining. These, these snakes, they would bite you, and the bite would burn miserably, and many of the people died of these snake bites. Think about what, what would it be like if that was what happened to us. Like you, every time you complain about some problem at church, or every time you complain about dinner vegetables, what if a snake slithered out from under the table and bit your foot? So Numbers 21, the people come to their senses, and they say, what are we doing? What are we doing? We've sinned. Moses, would you pray for us? Pray that the Lord would take away these snakes because some of them were dying of the snake bite. It would be comical almost, almost ironically fitting, except some of them were dying. So Numbers 21, verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a metal likeness of a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. Set this metal snake on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at it, at the bronze serpent, he lived. And so here in John three fourteen, Jesus says, Moses lifted up the serpent on a wooden pole, even so must the Son of Man, that's, that's, that's one of his code names, must the Son of Man be lifted up? Just like that bronze serpent was lifted up by Moses on a pole, he says, the Son of Man, I also am needing to be lifted up. Jesus is saying, that serpent on a wooden pole that was lifted up for the people who would die, who were snake bit, he's saying, that's me. Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of Man who will be, who must be 
lifted up. And so what's he talking about? I mean, we already know Nicodemus is completely blown away. He's not tracking at all. But Jesus is just plowing deeper and deeper. And he's, he's saying something very explicit here that even when the disciples understood it, they couldn't understand it. He would tell them three times, this has to happen. I have to be lifted up. And they could not understand. They would not believe. But he's making it clear. He's talking about his death on a cross. Jesus is the one who would be lifted up on the wooden beam at his crucifixion. Jesus' hands and feet would be nailed to that wooden post and they would hung, they would hang the living body of Jesus. He would be spiked to wood, alive, like a butchered animal. And they would set that cross in the ground and he would be above. So, so that the victim was lifted up above everyone for everyone to see publicly. Crucifixion was a public execution. And so why did Jesus come? Jesus came to die. That's why he came. He came to die. He couldn't do that virtually. He came to die as a sacrifice so that the condemned can live. Just as God condemned the people in the wilderness to death. And if they looked up at the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up, they would live Jesus is saying in the same way, in the fullest sense, I came to be lifted up so that those who sinned would live. I died so that you won't die. He was a substitute. He was a sacrifice in the place of the complaining, condemned people. And so at this point, Nicodemus has no idea about what Jesus is talking about, why he came, but Jesus is telling him. Nicodemus is just thinking, is Jesus a teacher? Is is Jesus some kind of sage, a guru. Verse 2, Jesus saying, no, no, much more. I'm a sacrifice, not just a sage. And so let me give you an illustration. When someone that you love, maybe you have someone that you love and they suffer, they've suffered for years from migraine headaches. And, And when they suffer from migraines, it's terrible. The migraine seizes them with pain. It could be for hours. It could be for days. And sometimes for some of them, it's, the pain is so bad, it's even to the point of vomiting. And when you love them, don't you wish there was some way that you could transfer the migraine from them and take it away from them and, and, and have it on yourself? You would do that, wouldn't you? you? You would sometimes probably even said that, but it just doesn't work that way. You, you can't do that. But with sin... With sin, it's different. With sin, it's, it's more like financial debt. You can transfer it from one to another. God can transfer sin from you onto Jesus, onto that serpent. And instead of you being charged, instead of you suffering and being punished, instead Jesus gets charged and punished. Jesus becomes the sacrifice for you. And so if you're exploring Christianity, you need to know that this is at the center of Christianity. This is one of the central things in Christianity. Jesus is our sacrifice. So we're not, just, we're not talking about Christianity being some kind of good way to live, a, 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 a specialized moral code that just really fits. We're talking about a sacrifice that has to be made. Jesus is our sacrifice. And the question here in the text, and for all of us, is do you believe? Do you believe? Nicodemus had grown up and had mastered theology. You may have grown up here. You may have memorized the catechism, always had the answer in Sunday school, have done the full, hardest level of Bible memory, but do you believe? Is Jesus your sacrifice? Some of you here have. 
And today, you believe Jesus is your sacrifice. So believe on him who was sacrificed. Now secondly, this is what we also see here. Believe on him or remain condemned. Jesus is saying, believe on me or remain condemned. This is in verses 18 through 21. Verse 18 makes one of these universal claims. Everyone in the world, everyone, already stands condemned. John, John 3, 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John says, if you do not believe, you already stand condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already. John is saying something like this. He's saying, we live in a society with laws, and if you break the law you're, and, and, you, and you go to trial and you're convicted, you've got a criminal conviction. But he's saying this, everyone starts with a criminal conviction. Everyone. This is another one of the core teachings in Christianity. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not one. So Christians of all people, we're the last ones that are saying, we're better than you. We don't do the things that you do. We're saying, we're at the front of the line. We know that we are sinners, that we are guilty. Now, when you think of the human race, what is, what is your evaluation of, of humanity? When you just think about humanity, Christianity teaches us that we're fallen. God created us good and upright. We were good and upright in knowledge, in righteousness, and in holiness. But Adam sinned, and we fell in him. And so now every member, every member of the human race but one, stands condemned. Humanity has fallen into darkness. Everyone. But in the main, when you live life, depending on where you live in the world and what time you're living in the world, in the main, when, when the new cycle is good, when society is enjoying peace and prosperity, people, whether they're Christians or not, people, they feel like people are decent. Humanity is pretty decent. And, and there are some people who are bad actors, and, and, and there are a few people that you would just say, yeah, that, some, those people are evil. But, but most people, most people are decent. Most people are good. If, if you left your car door unlocked, left your, your headlights on, they, they would come tell you. They wouldn't take advantage of it. When society enjoys peace and prosperity, we tend to think humanity is pretty good. When society's not at peace, when, when people are just struggling all across the board, their lives are falling apart, when the news is just full of news about corruption in government, and, and you, you live with a supervisor at work who's just abusive, and you've got relatives who are just an angry, fractious bunch of people, well then, humanity, it seems like we're pretty rotten. But whether the surrounding society seems pretty good or whether it seems pretty bad, the truth is we all stand condemned already. That's one of the core teachings of Christianity, and Jesus is coming to bring that. That's part of his message. You know, in the back of my house, when we moved here about 30 years ago, there was this huge, wide oak tree that was, I don't know, it, it was maybe 
four, four and a half, maybe five stories tall. It was, it was massive. It had these wide branches that uh, shaded our backyard. The trunk itself, at the base, it was maybe like four feet, five feet wide. Uh, and, and so over the years, we would look at this tree. And you know how it is in, in October, right? The hurricane season, tropical storms, uh, hurricane Category one, you know, so winds up to 60 miles an hour, lots of rain getting dumped down, the ground is soggy, and, and so we would look at this tree and we would worry. We worried that during one of these storms with these gusts, that the high winds might send the tree down. I mean, there, there had been some very large branches that came down and, and drove a hole right through the garage roof. We worried that the, the ground would be weak and soft and, and maybe the, this massive tree would come down on a house. So last week, our, our neighbor had it taken down. It was mostly in his yard. He had it taken down. And when the tree surgeons had taken it down to the stump, we saw a cross-section of the trunk. Now, you know how the cross-section of a massive tree should look, right? It should be solid wood with all of these rings, and you can get a sense of, of the age of the tree because you just have this round uh, that has all these concentric rings showing the age of the tree. But in this tree, in this tree, inside the trunk, just a few inches under the bark, it turned out, it was black, it was rotten, and it was gone. About 80% of the core of that tree, it wasn't just rotten, it was air. It, there was nothing there. It was dead. Outside, the tree looked massive. It looked solid, intact, but under the surface, most of it was rotten, dead. No matter how this tree looked on the outside, it was already dead inside. In the same way, all of humanity, no matter how it looks, stands already condemned. That is our condition. No matter how good the economy is, no matter how united the country eventually may become, no matter how prosperous we appear, the inside is rotten. Ever since Adam, the Bible calls that rot, sin. We turned from God long ago, and that's part of why we turn on each other very quickly, every day, all the time. So verses 18 through 21 describe two aspects of the fallen human condition. The, uh, this time I'm not going to say the glorious reform doctrine of sin, but this is the reform doctrine of sin. Two aspects and why we stand condemned already. First of all, we stand condemned because we love darkness. We love darkness. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So this is not a condemnation of bad practices. This is a condemnation of bad preferences. It's saying we stand condemned, not because we lie, not because we cheat, those are bad practices. It's saying we stand condemned because we love the darkness, our desires, the things that delight us, the things that we eagerly say, I wanna do that. They're dark, they're dark, more morally dark. And so maybe, Maybe you would never punch your enemy, but you take cool pleasure in seeing her get sick. Maybe you would never sleep with a man that you hadn't married, but you might enjoy sexual fantasy and lust in your heart and nurture it. You enjoy it. That's the con condemnation. We love darkness. Now, secondly, we also stand condemned, it says, because we practice evil. So there are the preferences which are dark and 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 evil, but we actually act on it. 
we practice evil. Not only do we tolerate evil desires in us, we also practice evil. And again, this is not Christian saying, everyone out there who's not a Christian, you're so evil, you do these bad things. We are saying, we do these things. Brothers and sisters, if I could give you a list of everything I need forgiveness for this week, it's horrible. I, I am a Christian. I have remaining sin, but I have the spirit of God in me, but I still sin. And I need grace. I need the cleansing of Christ every day. I couldn't stand without that every moment. And so verse 18 says, people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so what he's saying here is he's saying, church, you have, Israel, you have, people of the earth, you have dishonored your parents. You, you've dishonored your parents. You, you have watched things on screens which are forbidden. He's saying you've looked down in pride and arrogance on other people. You've taken things that weren't yours. And you've got people in your life who drive you batty and you've withheld love from them. And so what he's saying is our, our desires are evil, but also our deeds are evil. And that's sin. And so this is where it leaves us. John, 30, John 3, verse 20, he says... Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. He's saying this is how it works. When I have in my heart these toxic desires and I commit these terrible actions, he says we don't want to let that come out. We don't want people to know. We are like Roaches. What happens when you walk into in Tidewater, your utility room, and you flip on the light in the summertime? The roaches run. They don't like the light. That's what sin does for us. There's, there's a shame. We don't want it to be exposed. And so you may have in your conscience, you're remembering. We, 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 we always try to prepare and examine our hearts before the supper. And did I do, Lord, did I do something this week? Something I need to get right with you and confess and, and ask for forgiveness? Maybe you remember words that you spoke in anger to someone. Maybe you remember a lie and, and you still haven't confessed it. And, and when it comes, it's so clear. You know, oh, I, yeah, that was wrong. I, I need to confess it. But if you, if you hesitate and you think, I don't, I don't want to confess that. You know how that goes? And, and the longer you think about confessing it, the more there's the flesh that doesn't want to confess it. And the more you can rationalize all these ways to not confess, to not come into the light, to not admit your sin, your darkness, your, your sinful desires. I want to keep it in the dark. Why? Why do I want to keep it in the dark? Well, sometimes it's because I don't want to stop. I love, I love this pride. I love this lust and I don't want to be rid of it. Sometimes just the honest truth. I just want to continue. Continue to nurture my idolatry. Continue to nurture my self-indulgence. I want to keep my sin tumor. I don't want to give it up. But sometimes it's difficult to confess and to bring it into the light. Sometimes it's because I do want to stop. I want to be done with it, but shame keeps me from confessing. I am too ashamed to admit it. Like, a, like, like man and woman in Eden, when they sinned, they were ashamed. They were in hiding. They, they wanted to cover up with hasty excuses. I, I'm filled. I'm filled with self-loathing 
And if I reveal my secret, I'm sure that as much as I hate myself, you'll hate me even more if I tell you what I've done, if I confess it. And God, if he sees it, I have to confess it to him, he will loathe me as well. And so we cover up. We cover up. And, and one way we can tell is you do the, um, you do the sideways thing, right? You, you confess, but you don't fully confess. You, you confess, but you shift blame. There's this covering up. We, we shift blame. It, I heard this story of a, a, a teenager who was, who was um, with someone else who was having a medical procedure, and against the rules, the teenagers pulled out his phone and started videotaping the medical procedure. And so the medical person who was there said, you can't record that here. That's a violation of the other person's privacy. You've got to put that away or you've got to leave. And so the teenager who had, let's say, impulse control problems got furious threw his phone on the floor, shattered it in his anger, and then he said, see what you made me do? You made me break my phone. Just blame shifting, right? Blame shifting. We all recognize that. And so the question is, is it hard? Is it hard for you to admit your own sinful darkness? And is it hard for you to admit your own sinful desires? The desire to be praised by people, which isn't entirely bad, but you want that too much. Or the desire to please yourself, which is not entirely bad, but you want it too much. Is it hard for you to admit your own sinful practices, whether we're talking about uncontrolled appetite or uncontrolled tongue or uncontrolled temper, to tell another person, I did it. I did it. I cheated on you. I spoke unkind words, period. I put you down, and it was my pride, and it was wrong. James 5 tells us, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so we we must believe on him who was sacrificed. We must believe on him or remain condemned. And finally, lastly, we must believe on him and live. We must believe on him and live. Jesus is the only sacrifice that can remove our condemnation. John 3.16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. If you believe on him, You're not condemned. You were condemned. Everyone was condemned. But if you believe on him, you're not condemned. What does believe mean? Okay, what does believe mean? What does it mean to believe? It means that you believe the facts about Jesus being the sacrifice. You believe the facts of the the crucifixion of Jesus. It also means that you believe in the transfer of your sin to Jesus. It also means that you believe, you trust that Jesus took a punishment that you deserve and that you no longer stand condemned. You trust that. It sinks down into you and there's a relief. I'm not condemned. I was condemned, but I'm not condemned. And so that means day by day, day by day, hour by hour, you face up to the darkness. You face up to the darkness that's really in your own heart, but you admit it to God. 
You come clean to God and to people and you say, Jesus, I am convinced. Jesus, I'm convinced that you were condemned for me. I deserve to be condemned, but you were condemned. And now I am clean. I am perfectly clean before God through Jesus. I'm convinced that your cross removed my condemnation again and that I can stand in your presence, stand in the light of your presence. It means that you don't erase You don't try to erase the shame and the guilt by by putting in longer hours, by putting in longer hours in the books, putting in longer hours at work. It means that you don't try to erase the shame, you don't try to soothe the shame and the pain by by treating your family extra nice. I'm going to make up for this, I'm going to treat everyone extra nice because I've been so not nice. It means you don't try to make up for sin by doing a little more volunteering. It means you simply look up at Jesus, you look at him, and you live. And that's the gospel. Jesus said, look at me and live. Do you know what you will see if you look at Jesus and live? When you look at Jesus on the cross, you will see death. You will see death lifted up. You'll see a man who descended from heaven, and then he was lifted up, punctured and staked to a cross. And if you look at him and you see his death, you're going to see behind him more death and darkness. You'll see silhouetted the sky above Jesus was darkened as he, as he hung for three hours. He was death silhouetted, silhouetted in darkness on a darkened sky. It's a picture of our sin. It's a picture of our darkness, our lost state, and all of it on him. And if you look up at Jesus and you believe, you'll live. Because as you look up at Jesus on that cross and you see him looking down at you, what does Jesus see? When Jesus looks down from the cross at you, Jesus sees someone that he loves and he loves you with the depth, with the deepest love that's possible. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave that son. And so you look up him, you see death and sin. He looks at you and he sees the one he loves. Do you struggle with self-loathing? Do you struggle with hating yourself? Believer, Jesus loves you even when you hate yourself and you hate what you've done. God so loved those in their shame and darkness that he gave his unique and only son. And so here's what this means. Just a few things. It means you've got to stop with the self-condemnation, believer. You've got to stop with the self-condemnation because Jesus removes your condemnation. No more lecturing yourself. No more measuring yourself. No more comparing yourself down with other people that you're not as pretty, that you're not as talented, that you don't have as much respect as others. If you believe, Jesus looks at you. And he sees people whose condemnation is removed. And it's that great reversal. Jesus, the sinless one, carries our condemnation and we, the condemned, lose all condemnation. And Jesus, the righteous one, who is always bright and shining, he imputes his righteousness life and his righteous life to you. We, the unrighteous, gain a righteousness that we never perform, that we never added to. And so, Stop looping. Stop looping self-accusation for yesterday's sin. You confessed it. It's carried by Christ. It also means this. It means that you are loved. 
You are loved no matter what people have said to you, no matter what you say to yourself. Shame may shout at you that you're unlovely, that you're unworthy, but the gospel proves that God loves the unlovely. Give his voice more volume than your voice or the voice of anyone else. I am loved and God is making me lovely. Do you doubt that? Do you doubt that? Fight to believe it. He lowered himself because he loved you. And when you know that he loves you, people can reject you. People can dump you. People can ghost you. And it hurts. But it doesn't separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's another thing that it means for all of you. If you believe, if you understand this, you are becoming a person who enters the dark places, who enters the darkness in order to bring light. Just as Jesus descended into darkness to bring love and to life, you, you go to those who are bound in darkness. You're not afraid of these messy, messy situations. You don't avoid people who are in darkness, but you've got this compulsion to go into the darkness as Jesus did to bring life. You're longing for those that are pining in darkness to come and know him. And so you go to them with joyful news. I'll never forget how Bill, Bill Harrell once recounted he woke up one day this morning. He woke up one morning and said, thank God I'm saved. Here's the last thing that it means. Verses 15 and 16. Whoever believes on Jesus has eternal life. That means that death will be swallowed up by the resurrection. Jesus was raised. You will be raised, believer. You will live forever and not perish. You will live forever without disappointment, without regret. You will live forever glorified. There won't be a single stitch of shame on you. You will look great naked, clothed in immortality, and your heart, your inner person will look great naked and uncovered, clothed in Christ. No shred of darkness in any of your desires. And if I'm there, and God willing, I'll be there, I will look at you on that day and say, I can't remember a single thing you ever did wrong. Do you believe? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, shine on us, and may we turn away from our sin and shame and receive life and love from you. Remove our condemnation and give us confidence that we stand before you in Christ and there's no condemnation. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.